You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Dr. Lena Wen. She's an emergency physician and visiting professor of health policy and management at the George Washington University School of Public Health. And she's a contributing columnist at the Washington Post and an on-air commentator on medical matters for CNN. Uh, Prior to this, she served as the health commissioner for the city of Baltimore. And I believe that's when we first came into interaction with you, Lena, over the opioid crisis when we were doing activities here and you kindly we're engaged in sending some of your staff to some of our meetings. So thank you for that. Of course, I'm, and I'm glad to join you today. So, Lena, I had a chance over the weekend to, to go back and read your columns going back into early this year. Your output is prodigious, and, and it's really striking to me how much you draw on your own personal experiences. You talked about your pregnancy, the advice you offer as a physician to people, that sort of medical and compassion-based, your desire to sort of force people to think about the big picture. You were prophetic at moments and talking about the surge that lays ahead and your emphasis on very pragmatic steps. You make lists of things around testing, around reopening, and you're very fair-minded in giving credit when credit is due. And you're also pretty honest in terms of talking about the the risks in social protests, drawing on your own experience with Freddie Gray, the Freddie Gray crisis in Baltimore in 2015. Tell us in your mind, what is the distinct contribution that you make through your columns, through your CNN medical advisor role and all of the other ways in which the media calls upon you as an interpreter of what's happening here within the United States and the, as the pandemic advances and what needs to happen? And who do you see as your core audience? Well, that's a great question. I would say that at this time, I and so many others in the public health and the medical and scientific community have had to step up because there is rampant disinformation that's occurring. And because the top government scientists within the federal government have been muzzled, have not been allowed to speak directly to the American people, which really has hindered our response. This mixed messaging that's occurred where public health officials are directly contradicted by elected officials, where there are conspiracy theories that are given a voice that is much amplified beyond what they should have. As a result of that, there is a need for credible public health communication. And I and many others have stepped into this space. This is a space that I know and I'm very comfortable with because I need to be communicating with my patients. I see this with my patients too, that they're confused. I mean, people who want to do the right thing, they want to protect themselves and their loved ones from coronavirus. They have to sort through what's going on in the news and this new evolving scientific information every day. And so my primary audience to your question is Basically, my patience is communicating to my patients and to others in the community who want to know what they should do. And the secondary audience, I would say, are policymakers. But ultimately, it's to people who want this news you can use in order to protect themselves. What's the response been to you having that sort of 
I'm here to try and be factual, to be facts-based, to be consistent and coherent, and to build the trust and confidence of people. You don't take a partisan position. You're very pragmatic. You're very sort of plain-spoken in many ways in the way you address these issues. What's the response been? Well, in fact, I think that nonpartisan voice speaking as a physician and a scientist is so critical during these times because there is so much partisan noise and so much about this response has been politicized in a way that it really shouldn't. I mean, something as basic as mask wearing, the fact that masks, which reduce the risk of transmission, it protects you, protects me, it protects all of us. It can save tens of thousands of lives. Somehow that has become a not only a partisan symbol, but a cultural touchpoint that divides communities is, I think, is mind boggling. But I think there is a need for those of us in public health to cut through it, because ultimately we know that public health depends on the public's trust. So what's the response been? I I think it's been positive from many quarters. But of course, because public health has unfortunately been so politicized, of course, there have been individuals who have not appreciated the intention with which I and others are going into this, which is really only one. It's to save lives. Thank you. I want to invite my colleague and friend, Andrew Schwartz, to jump in. Thank you, Steve. And Dr. Wen, thank you for being here with us. The information you've been giving to the American people has been invaluable. I I want to ask you about the Thanksgiving holiday. We've just seen millions of people traveling. And, you know, are Americans overloaded with information? I mean, what explains millions of people traveling when the CDC and others like yourself have said, stay home this Thanksgiving. It's better for you. It's better for the rest of us. It's for the greater good. We can stop the spread of the disease. We can help the economy. What is it that you think has caused this you know, mass travel? And, and what do you think the result of that and the impact of that is going to be in the aftermath? It's a really good question. I mean, the reasons for it are complex. There is certainly an element of pandemic fatigue. We've been saying, look, let's hold off because a vaccine is not far away. Let's get through this winter. We can see one another in the late spring, early summer. But a lot of people are scared. I mean, they've been away from family for months and they just really wanted to see their loved ones over the holidays. I have sympathy for that. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that and try to make seeing one another as safe as possible. Even if we can't get to zero risk, we can reduce that risk as much as possible, which is a large part of what I focus on, this harm reduction principle that we so often talk about in public health. I think there are people who do not believe that the virus is real and others who believe it's real, but don't necessarily internalize the risk to themselves. There is a level of magical thinking that's there. There is this thinking of people saying, well, I'm pretty young and healthy. It's not going to really affect me. I'm not around older people. I'll just stay away from older people without necessarily recognizing. Of course, none of us want to inadvertently infect others and seed coronavirus all over the country and be the super spreader. But I think people don't see themselves as potentially being capable of that. And then there's the magical thinking of, well, people that I know and love can't possibly carry coronavirus. We tend to think of this as maybe this is something that affects other people. And I mean, I had a patient, for for example, who is so careful that she doesn't go to the grocery store. She gets all of her groceries delivered. She doesn't take the bus. She's barely going outside. But she has no problems inviting her kids and her grandkids and her neighbors to her home. 
because she's not thinking about the risk that they may carry. And so I think it's important for us to recognize where it is that people are coming from and approach where they're coming from with empathy and compassion rather than judgment. Lena, this weekend, we heard on the on the Sunday Public Affairs show some pretty stark statements. I mean, Brett Garrar, the Assistant Secretary for Health, HHS, pointed out that 95,000 people are hospitalized for COVID-19 at the moment. 20% of those in hospitals are there for COVID-19. Describe this as a really dangerous time. Tony Fauci said we're entering a period in which there's a surge superimposed on a surge as we think about what all the mobility and transport and interaction surrounding Thanksgiving may mean as we as we head deeper into this into this period of the of the holidays and the question I want to put to you is a uh, is our health system approaching a, a breaking point in much of America and we're beginning to see some pretty disturbing trends that suggest we're moving into triage here and how are you thinking about that how close are we and what are the metrics we use for making judgments around whether we're approaching a breaking point so it's a good point because we are at a breaking point already one in five hospitals are reporting that they are facing a critical shortage of healthcare workers. For those who think that rationing is something that just won't happen in this country because we have such an advanced healthcare system, I have news for you, which is that rationing is already happening. By definition, when there is a scarce resource, and that scarce resource is our ability to provide healthcare, when we have a situation like this, which is it's not one part of the country that's facing a disaster. You know, we're prepared as a country. If there is one area that has a hurricane or some other disaster, resources and staff can come from other areas to help that one area. And that's what we saw back in March and April in New York, where healthcare workers came from all over the country. Other places lent their ventilators to New York. We saw this happening again in June and July in the Sun Belt, in the South, the West, that other people were able to come and help. Now we have a natural disaster, essentially, that's occurring in all 50 states across all communities. There is no excess capacity. So by definition, we are already rationing care. Rural hospitals that don't have high levels of care, they're finding it very difficult, if not impossible, to transfer their patients. They're pleading to transfer their patients to urban centers for care. Urban hospitals are hit both ways by their own the populations that they're serving in their catchment areas, as well as these rural hospitals that have nowhere to send their patients. We are actually at a breaking point here. And if our healthcare system is overwhelmed and is collapsing, that is a major problem for the health, the well-being and security of Americans. And this means that if you have a heart issue or if you break your leg or any one of the many routine things that we think about, you better put it off, right? I mean, there are some things that one can put off, although we're also seeing the problems of doing that. People who put off their elective procedures back in March or April, now they're having problems because of that. And there are plenty yeah. of things that cannot be put off. If you're having a heart attack or a stroke, if you're about to give birth, you can't really put that off. And we're going to see care across the board being compromised. So if we're on this escalating surge and we're not at the peak yet, we're some distance from the peak. And as Tony Fauci said, we're the travel and the holidays imposed, superimposing another surge on top of that surge. And our systems are beginning to break. We can anticipate then that the mortality levels associated with COVID-19 are going to rise to very high levels fairly rapidly. Is that true? 
That's right. So the overall mortality is going to climb. We are at more than 2,000 deaths now. We, we can well reach the level of more than 3,000 or 4,000 deaths this winter. And we also will see the mortality rate increase. The only reason we've been able to reduce our mortality is because of exceptional care in our hospitals. But when that care becomes difficult to provide, we're going to see mortality escalate for coronavirus as well as for other conditions that, that need emergent treatment as well. Wouldn't you expect that national leadership, when, when health systems begin to break, when people are being turned away at the hospital, there's been, there was a wonderful piece, not a wonderful, but a disturbing piece in, in the Washington Post, uh, Lenny Bernstein this morning, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, Mayo Clinic Hospital, 160-bed hospital. It was horrifying to read the, about the conditions and decision processes by this very credible hospital. Wouldn't you expect that the consciousness of state leaders and national leaders would change pretty dramatically as we enter such a thing that we've never seen in modern times? Yes, and I do think that we're seeing it on the state and local level. The We've seen, for example, governors who have been opposed to mask mandates all along now impose mass mandates. We've seen people who, of course, would never want restrictions that hurt businesses and, and workers now impose them because there is no other choice. The concern, of course, is that many of these restrictions are too little, too late. We know that early aggressive action is what's needed in order to curb the spread of this virus. Now, when you've already reached explosive exponential spread, you need much more aggressive action in the same way that if you have a patient who's very ill, at the time that they're very ill, they need a lot more than if you were able to catch that disease early. And I'm afraid that that is what's happening across the country. And so to the excellent point that's, that was raised, we are having this escalating spread and we are not at the peak, nor do we even have any idea of what that peak is going to look like. Where that peak is going to be will depend on individual action as well as the policies that we set. And how do we introduce vaccines in the midst of this crisis? Well, I think the vaccines and the prospect of a vaccines, that's the, the hope for all of us this season because all the other news is really terrible. There's great news. I mean, even this morning about the Moderna vaccine, we now have a vaccine in addition to the Pfizer vaccine that appears to be safe very effective, 94 to 95% effective for these vaccines, also appears to be effective in preventing severe disease, which is really important because if we can get this virus to the point that it's not that much different from the common cold or a mild case of the flu, that obviously is game changing. That would totally change our approach to how we control the virus, how much it, it the demands that it places on our healthcare system. I mean, I think there's great news about the vaccine. The problem, of course, is that the vaccine still needs to be distributed. And that distribution is highly complex. It's also going to take time. And so the vaccine is not going to make much of a difference this winter. It will make a difference this spring, but we have to get through this winter. And in the meantime, we could be facing hundreds of thousands more deaths. And I hope that that's something people keep in mind. Yes, we should, we are, we should celebrate the vaccine. We should all take the vaccine when it's our turn to do so. But until then, we need to hunker down. Thank you. Andrew. Don't we have a problem maybe on the horizon with the vaccine as well? We're all looking at the vaccine as a rightly so as a, as a light at the end of the tunnel. But don't we need to make sure that Americans feel confident in the vaccine and will take the vaccine? And isn't there some evidence that that might not be the case for all people? And then the second part of the question is, is 
What would your advice to the incoming Biden administration be along those lines about vaccine and and how to mitigate some of these other more urgent situations? Yeah, I completely agree with you about the need for establishing trust, because for a vaccine to work, it needs to not only be safe and effective, it also needs to be trusted. It needs to be taken. And there is a serious problem. We already have individuals who are anti-vaccine. We also have people who are newly skeptical because of what appears to be politics rather than science driving the vaccine approval process, which I hope is a skepticism that we will remove. And the Biden team can certainly do a lot in making it very clear that it's only science and not political expediency that's driving vaccine approval. There needs to be a lot of outreach also to communities of color, those that have been traditionally marginalized, that have good reason uh, because of recent history of having been experimented on unethically and, and illegally. And there needs to be active outreach to these communities and prioritization also of these communities, too. I think the vaccine distribution process, I also have a lot of concerns about, too. We are asking state and local health departments that are already so constrained when it comes to resources. They have had to stand up contact tracing and testing from zero. They have been working around the clock, running a marathon at sprint speed. Now we're asking them also to run a vaccine distribution program with no resources or very limited resources. They need the resources pretty urgently. We haven't talked about this yet, but the Congress needs to pass the stimulus package in part to help them also. And I think there are a lot of issues that we have not even discussed with regard to getting the two doses of the vaccine. The vaccine will have some side effects. So far, we haven't discovered severe side effects with these with these vaccines as severe adverse reactions, but there are some side effects. For example, people might get a soreness at the side of the injection. They might develop a fever. They might have very mild symptoms. I know, having counseled my patients year after year about the importance of getting a flu vaccine, that already there are challenges when people, I mean, there are all of these myths where people say, oh, I got the flu from the flu vaccine. No, you didn't. Maybe you got some symptoms from getting the flu vaccine, or maybe you just got a cold that's unrelated to the flu, but already that is difficult to counter. And now we're going to ask people to already are skeptical of the COVID vaccine to get a first dose and then come back for a second dose several weeks later. I mean, I'm very, very concerned about the distribution challenges, about the trust barrier that we're going to overcome. And I think the Biden administration, I'm sure they're already doing this, but everything they can do to enlist the help of local individuals, trusted messengers locally will be absolutely essential. What about the president-elect's task force? You've argued that the task force should have stronger representation of economists, Republicans, leaders from the faith community. What more is it going to take to win over popular support in such a profoundly divided country? It is going to be very hard. And one of the core principles in public health is that the messenger often matters more than the message. And we need to recognize that for many millions of Americans, President-elect Biden is a very credible messenger. For many millions of Americans, public health leaders are credible messengers. But for many other millions, we are not. There has already been this pervasive and very unfortunate and untrue narrative that it's Democrats and doctors who want to shut everything down. And President Trump and the Republicans want to open everything up. I mean, this is why I strongly believe that enlisting business leaders and economists, as well as prominent Republicans, will be really critical. Pastors, religious leaders, also very important. Other community leaders will be critical to carry that message, too. In carrying that message, though, we also have to be mindful that 
we may need to change that message. And we may need to have a more moderated policy, which I think is good because a perfect policy on paper is not going to do much good if half the country will literally not follow it. I would much rather have a compromise policy that most people can get behind. What would that look like, Lena? What would a more moderated compromise policy be? Well, for example, I've argued that we cannot use the term lockdown, nor should we be aiming to a policy of a national lockdown. It's impractical. It is politically just never going to happen. And it is off-putting and frightening, confusing to many people. So in the same way, when we approach issues like school reopening, we need to have a much more nuanced discussion than simply open everything up or never have anything open. I think nuance and complexity is what defines public health, is certainly what defines this response to coronavirus. And we need to be okay with that gray area, which is where so many of the policies are. And frankly, that's how we practice clinical medicine. There are very few clear-cut answers of yes or no, or this is absolutely what needs to be done. A lot of it is helping people to navigate the complexities of this response. I ask you, there's been a lot of targeted assault upon the CDC and upon FDA, and CDC in particular has seen pretty grave damage to its, to its reputation, to its functionality, to its voice. What's it going to take to repair CDC and FDA, in your view? You know, I never could have imagined that these institutions that are among the most revered in the world as public health entities that protect the health and well-being of Americans, as well as the world, would be distrusted and discredited in this way. I think rebuilding that trust is going to be hard, and the incoming administration needs to let science drive the process. They need to commit to a principle of radical transparency, make sure that the decisions that they're making are clearly based on evidence, explain and over-explain the rationale behind every decision, and make the data available to everyone, including the biomedical community, especially the biomedical community, because the what is so worrisome to me about the vaccines is that so many doctors and nurses are distrustful of vaccines themselves. And we're never going to get patients to take the vaccine unless we doctors and nurses are convinced ourselves. And so rebuilding that trust is slow. However, there are incredible people, career scientists who are working there. And I am very optimistic that we will be able to do so. And in coming out of this crisis, really build on the critical work that's ahead, especially when it comes to talking about, for example, social determinants of health emphasizing the racial disparities that are unmasked because of this pandemic. We have seen now why focusing on public health is so critical. And I hope that that's something coming out of this pandemic, that we will redouble our efforts to these critical issues. Dr. Wen, what do you feel is the best way to combat the deluge of misinformation surrounding COVID-19? It's hard. It will take all of us. This is the reason why, starting with the question that you initially asked, this is why I do the work that I do in providing education to my patients and to the public and to policymakers. This is why all of us are doing this work. But I would say this is work that each and every one of us needs to do because we are the most trusted messengers to someone. Maybe that someone is a colleague that we work with. Maybe it's a loved one who's in our family. Maybe it's a friend. We can all help to spread the word and can counter misinformation. May I ask you two closing questions? One is, there's a lot of discussion around the, the prospect of an independent national bipartisan commission, something that might be modeled after the 9-11 commission. We're so divided as a country. 
We've had such a catastrophic set of experiences. We're not out of it yet. Obviously, we're in thick of it, as we talked about. But there is talk about trying to put something together that would allow us to reset a bipartisan civil conversation, take stock, think about what this experience has been, and think about the future in terms of how we're going to need to really change our thinking, reorder our thinking in our institutions, in our norms. How do you feel about that concept? I think it's a great idea. I think it is important for us to learn the lessons of what went wrong in this response, how we can do better, because we know that there is going to be another crisis. It's just a matter of when, not if there's another public health crisis. I think also a lot of things have been done right in this response, including from the Trump administration, but certainly on the state and local levels. And we should also learn from our experience of what went right, Operation Warp Speed, the development, for example, of a vaccine and therapeutics with the speed um, that we have, this public-private collaboration. So much has been done also on the local and state levels that were done right. And I think a bipartisan, nonpartisan commission to study this is really important. Thank you. Now, you've been very passionate and incisive on managing the COVID threat in schools. I wanted to ask a question into that on Are you concerned about the mental health dimension, particularly around secondary school students that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around what the what the complications are uh, might be for their isolation in this period? And related to that, do you feel like the arguments that you're making are taking hold? Are we seeing a thinking, a change in thinking in America around how to approach schools? I mean, it's a very good point that you make, Stephen, because we need to be attentive to not only the cognitive, emotional aspects of of schools not being open for in-person instruction, but also the mental health impact on students and on families and the uh, burdens that this is now imposing on so many families, too. At the same time, I think what has not been centered as much in the discussion is the impact on teachers and to staff. There have been reports coming out, good reports, about how schools are not primary contributors to community transmission, and that's great news. But that doesn't mean that in-person schooling is not posing a risk to those who are in schools, specifically teachers and staff who may have underlying conditions, who are older, who may also be living with those who are more more vulnerable. What I'm very concerned about is we know what it takes to keep schools open for in-person instruction, and that's controlling the community spread, which we fail to do as a society. It is investing in upgrades to our schools, mitigation measures, for example, better ventilation and um, reducing capacity in schools. We have not done these things. So, and I think it is really unfair to put the failure of our society on schools and teachers and staff. And I hope that going forward, that's one of the lessons that we learn, that if our goal is to actually prioritize our children as it should be, and their physical health, their mental health, their learning, then we need to be making the hard choices to not prioritize other things because we can't do it all. And we certainly should not put all the burden of societal failure on those who work in the schools. Lena, thank you so much for your time today. We're very grateful to you and thank you for your service and your contributions, which are monumental and terribly important. And thank you for taking time to be with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.